Hey everyone, it's Ben again with Glenn at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. And today we're going to be talking about something that actually comes up a lot in the presentations we do, uh, and, and it sort of indicates how important this was in early American history, the sugar trade. Uh, you know, focused in the Caribbean, but its effects are wide-ranging through the entire Atlantic world. And today I have with me a great colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Jeff Pardue from the University of North Georgia. Jeff, tell us about yourself. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. I'm a history professor at the University of North Georgia. been here since uh, 2000 when we were at little old, uh, Gainesville College. And currently I'm the department head as well, been the department head since uh, 2014. Happy to be here, though. Great to have you. So, you know, we like I said, we can dive right into it. And it, it's interesting when we do a lot of the, the talks here. And this is something maybe you can speak to a little bit. Not really recent, but in, an important shift when we talk about the American Revolution and even the French and Indian War. The profession has sort of gotten away from a America-centric view of things and started to look at an Atlantic-wide view of things. Tell us tell us why that is. Tell us why that's important. Well, I think because, I mean, we're, uh, nothing's done in isolation. Nothing, no uh, part of the Americas uh, evolved completely on its own, and they all interact with one another, especially in the colonial period that you're referring to. Uh, there's all kinds of activity, whether it's trade or migration that's going on between. And these are all, you know, colonies of uh, various European countries for the most part. And so, again, there's just going to be a lot of uh, interaction between uh, the two. So it doesn't make sense to just look at them uh, in a completely isolated way. I think that's uh, misleading. And it's and I think it's been a much better way to look at, you know, this in, in terms of a, a more Atlantic uh, uh, context, because it's just, you know, kind of more accurately portrays what's going on. When you look at you know, again, migration patterns and trade patterns, uh, it, it just puts it into context better. Uh, and it, it makes you realize that these countries aren't, I mean, they all have their own unique history. So, of course, you know, you, you can look at them specifically, but it, it also does make you realize that they don't, it's not completely unique. Uh, so I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind sometimes. And I think one of the good things about it too, and this this ties in directly with the importance of the sugar trade. Many times our views of North America tend to be very British centric. And yet when you start looking at it from an Atlantic view, you get lots of other European countries that start to fill in a lot of the gaps that are very important, like France and like Spain. So, you know, talk about, if you don't mind, the role those nations played, you know, in the Caribbean, in the development of all those trades, but specifically the sugar trade. Sure. The Well, of course, the Spanish, we start with the Spanish because they were the first ones there, right? So Columbus, you know, he, he's the one that discovers a place, claims it all for, for Spain. All of it. And, uh, all of it. That's right. Whether or not they had a toe on, you know, all the, you know, the, the land there, uh, they're, they're claiming it all. And actually, they, they tried to grow sugar early on. In a second voyage, he's bringing sugar cane with them because the Portuguese had already been cultivating sugar off the coast of Africa on, on some little islands there, Madeira and Sao Tome down in the, um, the, off the coast of West Africa. So they, they were hoping to grow it kind of early on. And so they start, it doesn't really go anywhere because you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, largely because the Spanish are more 
interested in developing their kind of mainland uh, territories in uh, Peru and in Mexico. So they kind of ignored the, the Caribbean part of it a little bit more. And then the Portuguese, who we don't, of course, associate with the Caribbean much, uh, because, of course, with the Treaty of Tordesillas, they're not, that's not area that they're, they're going to be moving in. But, of course, they have Brazil. And they're the ones that really kind of get sugar going in Brazil. And they have a number of sugar mills by the late 1500s. So you've got you know, maybe, you know, 200 sugar mills uh, producing a fair amount of sugar, uh, you know, by that point. And really, the British and the French, who we associate with the ones who really kind of go crazy with the, the sugar trade and really, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones that kind of get the, the what we call the sugar revolution going, they wouldn't have had that opportunity had it not been for the Dutch. The Dutch are kind of the I don't know, the, the midwives of the sugar revolution. Uh, they're the ones that really kind of teach and, and uh, provide the resources that the British and the French needed. And that's, of course, because they don't like the Portuguese and the Spanish. They're constantly at war with them. Uh, and in fact, they had occupied a large section of Brazil in the late 1500s and taken over those sugar mills, learned the process, and then basically helped the British and French in their transition to, you know, starting to grow sugar uh, in the, uh, on the islands that they had seized. By this point, the, the British and the French, of course, ignoring Spanish claims, especially on those little islands, what we call the Lesser Antilles, uh, they had begun to settle those. And uh, that's when they begin to introduce that. So we're now in the early 1600s, the 1620s, 1630s is when this process is happening. And it was really with Dutch uh, money, uh, credit, uh, with Dutch uh, know-how, the equipment, and with shipping, even insurance and things like that, that kind of provided the whole infrastructure for getting it going. Yeah, the the Dutch brought the really exciting parts in, like (laughs) the shipping manifest, but but, but that's an important part of it. Sure. Uh, And you said, you know, you said the words sugar revolution, and I'm sure many of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Can you dig into that just a little bit? Okay, so yeah, we use the word revolution when we mean, you know, literally it's kind of the overturning of society or it's a, you know, it's a big change uh, as the way I describe it in class. And uh, this definitely merits that because the way the West Indies was going prior to this is they were colonies that looked a lot like, you know, the North American colonies where you had settlement by a, a kind of a wide variety of groups from the home countries, different classes of people uh, looking for different opportunities, mostly land to try to, you know, but you had, uh, again, kind of, you know, some religious folks that, that were coming down there and, and uh, the economies were mixed. You had, you know, some big landowners, you had, you know, the small farmers, you know, and the variety of crops was higher, you know, in this early period. But when sugar comes along, when the Dutch basically kind of introduced this, and then uh, it started with the, the really the British in the 1630s and Barbados, when they make that transition, everything is going to change as a result of the introduction of sugar, because it is a crop that requires certain things that are going to demand changes uh, in on the rest of the island. So, for example, prior to this, tobacco was one of the cash crops that they're growing. They're trying to grow down in the Caribbean. It was never as good as the like the Virginia variety, which is one of the reasons they were happy to give it up. But also there was a glut in the world market in the early 1600s. So there's no money to be made on it. But 
One of the things with tobacco is you can grow tobacco with small number of workers, like a family farm. You know, you can a family business can can grow tobacco and, and make a living on that. No problem. But sugar is a large scale operation. So only rich people basically can get involved in this business because you need a lot of land. You need a lot of labor and you need a lot of money in order to kind of get it. And there's a lot of machinery that's involved as well. So it's an extremely expensive investment. So this is what's going to inaugurate all of these changes. So Barbados starts out as one of these mixed colonies, but eventually it's going to become a colony where, you know, a handful of people, a handful of landowners kind of control everything. They'll take over the government, all these, you know, governments will be plantocracies, you know, uh, ruled by uh, a planter class and their economy will be completely monoculture. It'll be just growing sugar. In fact, a place like Barbados, it's one of the most, uh, one, one of the kind of richest soils and, and one of the most productive agricultural environments there is on the planet, yet they had to import food because <laughs> sugar became so valuable that everyone wants to, every square inch is being used to grow sugar. So that's why, you know, we, we call it a, a sugar revolution, that it, it changed the kind of political structure, it changed the economy. Society changed in that, the, de- uh, the, the in other words, the demographic uh, changed. Whereas before you had a mostly white population, mostly European, that was either landowner and you had some indentured servants there. You had some slaves, but you also had a free black population because slavery isn't really uh, established or you know completely necessary. But all of that changes after sugar and these all of these uh, islands become completely dependent on slave labor, massive amounts of slave labor. So they give up on indentured servitude and turn towards uh, slave population. So by the time by the late 1600s, so, you know, 50 years barely after this revolution has started, you have a small white population that rules over this massive black population that's mostly enslaved. So, you know, again, this is another sign of it, it kind of lives up to the again, revolution term that we apply to it. You know, you mentioned slavery. And that's such a complicated issue, of course. And again, being very North American centric, we tend to focus on the slavery that, that takes place here. But is it is it safe to say that it was the sugar trade that began the first large scale importation of the institution of slavery to the new world? Absolutely. And that's where you can see kind of these connections with maybe North America, because, yeah, uh, you know, slavery becomes, you know, and a plantation economy becomes important in North America, you know, Central America, South America. But really, it's the Caribbean where it's most focused and most prominent. And so really, a lot of the kind of slavery infrastructure, uh, especially the slave trade infrastructure is kind of established because of the transition to sugar and the heavy, heavy use of slave labor. So yeah, like, you know, nowhere, like in the, in the U S South where you have a plantation system as well. Yeah. There's, you know, you have plantations, you have slave labor, but it never, you know, nowhere in the U S South was it as dependent on, uh, you know, a slave economy, the way that it was uh, in the Caribbean. So yeah. And you, you especially see it when you look at the numbers for the slave trade, okay, which is the buying, you know, that's the kind of buying and selling of, of people, uh, of slaves, and uh, the movement uh, of them. And so here we're talking about the Atlantic slave trade. And when you look at the total numbers crossing the Atlantic, they're not going to North America, okay, a hand, you know, a small number are, but because, you know, just cotton was not as nearly as demanding a crop. And also the, the slave population in North America was 
naturally increasing on its own. In the Caribbean, there was a much, much higher demand with sugar. And also the slave population was declining because of uh, the high mortality rates, uh, because of the work and the, the disease and, and uh, you know, everything else. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean it's just the, the, the numbers are kind of staggering in many ways. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the that's the thing you think about, you know, slavery is bad everywhere. But on the on in the Caribbean, on those sugar plantations, it just was probably the, one of some of the absolute worst conditions that have ever existed in human history um, had to have been horrible right right i mean yeah i mean the, like you say it's a complicated topic slavery uh and there are different when you look in world history you know slavery has been around really since the beginning of human civilization and you know most societies at some point had you know slavery somewhere uh in their past but it was it varied greatly on what that means most of us as americans we 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 look to our history and that's what you know slavery is it's a you know agriculture it's on a plantation it's a field hand or it's something like that but that's really for most of of world history most slaves were not field hands i mean they they did a kind of a right they were much more integrated into society and they were usually prisoners of war they were not you know purchased and right. you know so yeah, it, it 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 is, but on in, in the Caribbean, uh, you know, because of the conditions, because of the work and, and the conditions, uh, it is a much more kind of brutal, yeah, kind of horrific uh, environment uh, for them. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they're working these long hours. They work usually six days a week. You know, the seventh day, or, or sometimes it was five and a half days. They, they might have gotten uh, dependent on you know what island you were talking about. They would get maybe half a day on Saturday to work their own gardens. They got, you know, a couple of things of clothes each year, but just really the the work itself, especially the work of a field hand uh, on a sugar plantation was extremely difficult, especially, you know, the cane cutters. I mean, just uh, the cane, you know, can, it the, the leaves can cut you, you know, they're very sharp. You're bending over all the time with this big machete. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's of course, in a, in a tropical climate, and so it, it just, you know, was very, very difficult. And when it's harvest season, you're just working practically nonstop. I mean, because, you know, again, that gets to the nature of sugar. When you when you harvest it, when you cut it, you have to process it very quickly. So there was this like when you're harvesting it, it, it the, the plantation just kind of came to life and almost is operating 24 uh, seven to get it processed. So all this sugar that's being made on these plantations with, with, you know, with the machinery and it's, it's big business. Where's the sugar going and what are they doing with it? Why is it so <laughs> profitable? Why is it such a big deal? Well, mainly it's profitable because it's good. Yeah. We like the sweet things <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, historically, what have we used to sweeten up our food? Honey, come on, you know, fruit, <laughs> right. and I don't think so. So, now, I mean, we're, we're it, recording it, this just a few days after Halloween. So we, I think we've both had our allowance <laughs> right. of sugar. Right. So then maybe we've had a little bit too much, but for most <laughs> of history, yeah, it would be, a, it was a luxury item initially. And so it's a little bit like the spices coming out of uh, India, you know, cinnamons or nutmegs or, you know, pepper. Again, stuff we kind of take for granted, but for a lot of history, especially like, you know, in the early modern period, Europeans are trying to get to the East to bring this stuff back. And so sugar, so it's a, it's a rare commodity initially 
that only wealthy people would have. And so in the 16th, 17th, 18th uh, centuries, only wealthy people can afford it. And a lot of them, they use it as a status symbol. They're not even cooking with it. What they're doing is like they're making sculptures out of it. So they'll have these huge parties <laughs> and they'll make a big, you know, kind of castle or something out of sugar. And it's just a way of kind of showing off your wealth that I have this, you know, luxury item here and I'm just, I'm not even going to eat it. I'm just going to make a piece of art out of it for everyone to admire. So it's not until the 19th century where there's more industrial methods applied to the processing of sugar. And also that at that point, they're able to extract uh, sugar from sugar beets uh, as well. So, you know, uh, sugar cane, no longer the only way uh, crop you can get it from. At that point, it becomes more widely available to ordinary folks. Uh, so, and, and then it becomes an important commodity then. But the, at that point, the, the price is much lower and the, the world supply is much higher. Um, but that, again, that kind of takes place in, in the 19th century for, you know, more supply. And again, islands like Cuba, which had been late, you know, they hadn't really been part of the sugar revolution in the 19th century. They finally get involved in sugar, but at that point, you have steam machines that they can then use uh, to process sugar much more efficiently than, say, the old sugar islands like Barbados or Guadeloupe or Martinique, you know, those, those uh, ones that have been so profitable uh, earlier. Right. So, it, so sugar's accessible to the, quote, average person in the mid to late 18th century, but not nearly in the quantities that we're used to. Is that, uh, is that fair or is, it, or is it even accessible then? Uh, yes. Uh, so it would be, it'd just be expensive. So it wouldn't be, you know, like every working family is not going to be sweetening up their tea or sugar or coffee with sugar. But, you know, so you did, I, I think, uh, so it was accessible, uh, but just in much, much, yeah, uh, smaller quantities. Uh, absolutely. They're not going to get five pound bags at Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the deal. I mean, I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you look at how much sugar these little islands were able to produce during, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries, given the technology of the time. And, and really, a lot of historians look at them as kind of pro called proto-industrial uh, methods. So they were kind of the first ones to really you know, you've got this massive labor force, you've got all these slaves that are kind of like harvesting the, the sugar. But then, like I said, you had to, you know, before railroads and all that, you had to process it on the plantation itself, which meant because it would spoil. Once you cut the cane, it'll spoil within a, you know, a fairly short amount of time. So you have to get it to the mill, you have to crush it, get the juice out, boil it. And it's this very complicated kind of boiling process to kind of get it into a raw form. And then, and actually it would be sent a lot of times to, you know, the, the North American colonies or maybe back to Europe to be, to be refined into the white sugar. It was usually in kind of a, a earlier form, but transportable uh, by that. It, it would keep by that point. But all that would be done, you know, on the plantation. So yeah, you can't, you know, these plantations, even big plantations, you're going to be limited how much you can produce. Uh, and, and so, yeah, again, it's not until the 19th century we got kind of bigger, you know, practically factories that are able to, to do it uh, much more efficiently. With that kind of big business based on geographic areas that are islands, uh, obviously wars cranked up several times, or, or maybe it was one grand long war with high points and low <laughs> points is a better way to put it. There, there's whole episodes we could do on just the role of the, the British and the French fighting over sugar islands during the American Revolution and the French and Indian, the Seven Years' War and all that right. stuff. But 
we won't get into that, but but tell us a little bit about how that emphasis on the sugar trade in the Caribbean slowly started to, I guess, the decline of the sugar revolution is maybe the best way to put it. It did decline in again in the 19th century when the uh, the, the world supply went up. You've got more sources, uh, both as I mentioned, you, you're getting it from the sugar beet now as well as sugar cane. You're growing sugar in India and other places of the world, not just the West Indies. So the supply goes up. There's less money to be made, and so that's you know the the West Indian economy begins to you know kind of going to a tailspin for much of the 19th century. You know, places like Cuba were able to kind of revive, you know, sugar and tobacco uh, because they were bigger and, and kind of a, a had adapted to, to new technologies, but the more traditional sugar islands uh, had not. Uh, yeah, and really, I associate sugar and war with the really the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, you know, prior to the 19th century. And yeah, they're definitely fighting over these sugar islands, uh, you know, and, and it just added to the cost of, of, of doing sugar. Like sugar was a, a precarious enough investment. You know, you've got all this money, you got this crop and, and you've, you might get hit with a hurricane or, you know, something like that. And then to have war kind of added on top of that, it, it, it just, you know, made it that much more uh, expensive. So, like, I mean, it's amazing that really the sugar revolution started with the British in Barbados when, you know, kind of immediately after it's introduced in the 1630s, then by the time you get to the 1640s, you got the English Civil War, okay? And you've got, you know, kind of, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, you know, so you've got, you know, the islanders themselves kind of uh, dividing into factions and then, you know, even uh, and you've got basically who's ever in charge back in England coming over and raiding the island if it's the wrong, you know, the wrong political rulers are in power. So, yeah, you know, but then you've got the wars between the uh, different countries. So, uh, of course, you know, uh, especially in the 17th century, when it's discovered that we can make a lot of money here, this is where the British and the French really go after the Spanish. So, of course, the British get Jamaica in the 1650s. The, the French uh, get uh, their big uh, steel was um, half of Hispaniola, which, to, which they called Santa Domingue. Uh, which was uh, the the French side of uh, Santo Domingo, um, which now today is Dominican Republic and Haiti, where it would be those two uh, uh, countries. But uh, you know that, in addition to stealing all the little, they've already you know they've already been stealing the little islands, but those right. are kind of big steals. But those were wars, you know, completely just about you know kind of taking it to the Spanish and you know seeing the opportunities there. But as you know, I'm sure you know uh, you know again we usually talk about the Seven Years' War, not the French and Indian War, but you know, in, in the settlement to that, one of the in the negotiations, the British would have basically given up on Canada, you know, or, you know, the kind of Quebec area that, that they had conquered in exchange for Guadeloupe, that one little sugar island of Guadeloupe. And the French were like, no, thanks. You can have Canada. We're going to hold on to, to Guadeloupe. OK. And if you look, it's just like a dot on the map, but it just made so much more money than you know, what do you got in Canada? You know, you got furs and timber. Right. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, when Voltaire heard that uh, France had lost Canada, he said, well, it's only a few acres of snow. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, you know, so it, it, it shows how, um, you know, important uh, sugar was. I mean, the Saint-Domingue uh, at a certain point provided the French government with almost 
uh, with about 25% of its total revenues. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that island by itself or that half of an island is just kind of remarkable in and of itself. It had this gigantic slave population. It's producing practically half of the world's sugar in the 18th century. And of course, you know, it, it all explodes in this massive revolution, the slave uprising uh, in uh, the 1790s. So yeah, big, big history, big money and big taste. Yeah. Uh, we. <clears throat> That's probably about all the time we have for this episode, Dr. Pardue. I want to thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. It's it's one of those little esoteric times in history that have a huge impact that most people just, they're just not aware of it. All right. All right. Well, yeah, I'm happy to kind of spread the word and uh, you know, make people more aware. So I, again, I appreciate the invitation. Fantastic. Well, uh, folks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening in to then again. And until we join you next time, please stay safe. Take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages, again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.